I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. There are some people in life who just seem to have this ability of being, well, rather brilliant at whatever they turn their hand to. And when I mention that my guest is a musician, journalist, writer, broadcaster, presenter, comedian, academic, university chancellor, and priest, and basically an all-round astounding person. I think you have a pretty good idea to whom I'm referring. Well, the Reverend Richard Coles has and continues to entrance and grace British society and far beyond with his extraordinarily diverse interests and views. And he seamlessly floats from one subject to another with curiosity and knowledge, almost in a Stephen Fry-esque way. Today, I'm curious to know how listening, in its varied ways, has shaped his decision-making, actions and overall journey, making him the true national treasure he is. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. I feel um, massively flattered, which is a very nice feeling indeed. <laughs> Well, it's it's utterly true, though. I mean, your your interest and your whole journey has been just unbelievable. I think you're 150 years old, really, because I don't know how you how you cram everything in. I feel, I feel 150 years old. <laughs> but you know, we're always when we're doing these virtual uh, podcasts or meetings or whatever it may be, we're always curious towards what people have behind them. And you know, you you look as though you have a wonderful room there, a super piano and a harp. Yeah, I have. Um, uh, yeah, it's my study actually, which um, is uh, very comfortably appointed. But I keep the piano here. <laughs> also, the harp, which actually was was my late partner's, uh, who was a harpist among many other things. Uh, but I do like to strum out the odd chord. I'm very conscious that I'm speaking to a world uh, leading world uh, performer in all these sorts of things. So forgive me. There's also an no. accord- um, there's an accordion there as well. I don't know if you can see that. Oh there's- wow! Yes. Oh, well, that's been my my lockdown project has been to learn the accordion because I've always wanted to, and uh, ah. and then a parishioner died and uh, left me his accordion. And then, uh, so I've been having some lessons and uh, I'm just working on my first tango at the moment, Evelyn. <laughs> so that will suit a kind of follow-on from Strictly Come Dancing? Well, um, I'm not sure... I'm, I think playing a tango will probably be a more successful <laughs> enterprise than trying to dance a tango. <laughs> but when David was alive, did you perform together, you know, even privately or, or otherwise? Yeah, well, he was a fiddler player, actually, a fiddle player, actually, so we used to play together quite a lot. Quite a lot of... We both liked uh, Scottish traditional music very much, so there was a lot of that. Uh, and also, um, we played all sorts of things. So I remember one piece in particular, which is uh, so much I associate with him, I can't really hear it now because it's too... Uh, makes me too sad. Is uh, the Arvo Pert Spiegel am Spiegel, you know, the piano violin oh, piece? Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. It's also extremely technically undemanding, which is why we liked it so much. But uh, but to make well, it sound nice is difficult. It it is, and it's one of those pieces, you know, that can be adapted to so many instruments. I think the last time I experienced a version of that was for piano and double bass. 
And, you know, the double bass was like a cello. Well, certainly in, in the respective player's hands, you know, it was, it was just so beautiful. But you say simplicity, but, you know, sometimes that's the most precious form of listening in a way, you know, with that particular piece, which, as you say, on paper it looks so so simple. And, and technically, yes, it is, but just to have that presence of mind just makes it so so special a piece. And also, I think for a, a not very good musician like me, uh, if I do manage to solve a technical problem, I'm so pleased with myself uh, that I, I sort of feel for a second like a virtuoso. And um, and then what I shouldn't be doing, what I should be doing, of course, is listening to the piece of music. And what I find with the with the, the pair piece is because it's not so technically demanding, it does oblige me to listen to what I'm playing more. And that's really when it gets interesting, isn't it? When you stop thinking about uh, how you're making the sound, but what you're making the sound for. Yes, that, that's true. And I mean, I'd just like to go back uh, to your early years, really, because, of course, your uh, grandfather and father, they were in the shoe manufacturing business, am I right? Yeah, well, it goes back further than that, actually. One of my ancestors, my great-great-grandfather, was one of the pioneers of... He invented the machines that mechanised shoe production, uh-huh. uh, among other things. He also invented the bacon slicer, um, <clears throat> Uh, and also a machine for making fireworks. He was one of he was a fascinating Victorian self-made man, but he the enterprise that he started uh, built the shoe factories that were so much part of the life in Northamptonshire for about a hundred years. And my family were one of the families that profited from that. Mm, that's that's interesting. And I mean, as a young boy, what was what were you listening to? I mean, was music in the home? Uh, well, my first memory is of torture, which is um, both my parents were pretty much tone deaf. No, my father was tone deaf. My mother was sharp and was standing between them at carol services. And my father thought, would go, hog the hair all day. He just thought you did loud and rhythmic with singing. And my mother would be usually a quarter tone, sometimes a semitone out. And so it was this experience. I felt rather like Christ between the two robbers being crucified. Sorry, I shouldn't really say that in a blasphemous thought. But but I think that's probably what gave me my curiosity about, well, if this isn't working, how do I make it work? And my grandfather was a pianist. Um, uh, he, was a, he, he was a very flamboyant person, but he used to play and sing at the piano. I realise now what I didn't realise that they were probably very smutty and unsuitable songs, but he made people roar with laughter. And I thought, and I think for me that the, my sort of love of music came quite early, but also my love of performing came quite early too, and the, and the two came together perhaps. That, that's really interesting, and I think that has obviously played a large part in your journey. That performance and connecting and and building bridges really whether it's through the spoken word or through uh, a musical sound or or otherwise you know but i think you've inherited an awful lot of, oh i'm not saying that you're tone deaf by any means but as as, as far as the, the varied interests and so on but but, but you know what Evan? i think i think it <laughs> In some, I mean, I had an aunt, a great aunt, who was a fiddle player. She played in the, uh, I think it was the Royal Philharmonic. Oh. And she was um, she was a remarkable person. She, I think she played in the first performance of um, 
the Vaughan Williams serenade to music. She was mm. knocking, running around London in the sort of 30s, 40s and 50s. She was a very interesting woman. She went to university uh, when it was very unusual for women to do that, did a maths degree, but she actually was also a musician. And she had this glamorous life in London where she lived with another woman who was... <coughs> oh, sorry. That's an obligato from the dog. <laughs> the other woman was, was called Elspeth. It was extremely <laughs> fey. And Tootie, as we called her, was extremely butch. She used to wear jodhpurs and smoke a pipe, um, which sort of meant nothing to me much at the time. I realised now that she was living living her life. Good for her. Um, but she used to... She knew that... She kind of saw in me someone who was curious and interested in, in music too. So she kind of fed me with music when she came up. And also she retired to near where I lived. And I used to go around there. And she used to let me drink and smoke. I was 13. <laughs> And um, and we'd listen to music, and she left me all her miniature scores when she died. She got into a terrible fight with a policeman, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, oh, what's that? Is that you or me? Oh, we have a food van. So between oh, you, <laughs> between your maybe your dog heard the food van whilst it was a mile away or something. And <laughs> what I was, that was a rambling anecdote, but what I was. What I was trying to say was that I think Tootie, as we called her, she seriously got me interested in music and she gave me quite complicated music to listen to when I was very young. So she was giving me Britain to listen to when I was five or six. Um, And I lapped it up in the way you do before you know it's it's, it's work. Um, But my grandfather gave me the... So I I think the trouble is my ambition in music is not matched by my achievement because my grandfather went for effect if you see what I mean. So I became a loud pianist with enthusiastic use of the sostenuto pedal (laughs) to cover a multitude of sins. So it it kind of worked and didn't work for me. (laughs) But then you eventually settled for the clarinet, saxophone and keyboards. So did you begin those at a a young age as well? No, no, no. no. Actually, piano I began with. So when I was four, I started learning the piano with Yvonne Bonesse who was a wonderful music teacher, died a couple of years ago. I did her funeral. She was um, 100. But she was a violinist and she had a gold tooth. (laughs) And her party piece was the Brahms Hungarian dance. I can remember her playing it with this flashing gold tooth. And that inspired me to take up the fiddle as well. So actually it was piano and then violin. But I was hopeless at the violin. And then, because I was a chorister by then and in chapel a lot, the organ came along and the saxophone actually didn't I didn't come along until I was older and I got run over and with the compensation I bought a saxophone and that's how I and I taught myself not very well but but that's the order in which it came (laughs) and there seems to be this sort of fearless curiosity towards thinking that actually I can explore this by myself I can learn an instrument by myself you know when we're so eager to find teachers and 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 I think that's really interesting. Fearless is one word for it. I mean, uh, it's interesting now at 58 having music lessons again. So I have a weekly accordion lesson with Yanis, who's this wonderful teacher. And and I'm, I have the discipline now that I lacked when I was younger, I think, to do the, you know, the solid work just to kind of get some things, you know, securely before I try to move on to something else. I realised in the past, so much of what I was doing was kind of rushing forwards too quickly and not actually acquiring the necessary technique. So Mm. I would constantly run into a brick wall when I thought I can't do that. I would have to go back and just practice um, octave scales or something really quite, you know, 
uh, not elementary exactly, but fundamental, mm. that I've skipped over before. Yeah, and I suppose that's a trait that even as a professional musician myself, you know, that uh, I think as, as, as the years go by, you're, I, anyway, I find that I'm, I'm more now in tune with the, the actual word practice um, and, yeah. and, and where you're really knuckling down, whereas as a youngster you just want to be trying everything and, and firing off in all directions, which isn't a bad thing, of course, but um, you're eager to, to try as much as possible. But it's interesting now because I mean I wish I hadn't been so in a hurry to kind of cut a dash because I've discovered that the sort of the basis of playing decently is technique. Duh, you know. Mm. I have a friend of mine, Neil Back, who used to play rugby for England, who's a darling, and he, we were talking about performance, and he said, "Perfect preparation leads to perfect performance," which of course is is so obviously true. But I try to keep that at the forefront of my mind now, is just to be properly prepared before I try something. Yeah. And then, of course, your experience as a choir boy, you know, that there must have been a kind of very different discipline, am I right there? Or, or yeah. you know, what, what did that feed into yourself, whether it's through listening or just the presence of being in a different type of acoustic and a, a different environment? Well, I think what was interesting about it was that my music making until I joined the choir was a solitary enterprise. And then when I joined the choir, of course, I was making music with other people, which for me has always been, when on a good day, as close to heaven as we will get on earth, it seems to me. On a bad day, more like the other place. But um, <laughs> I, but, but the thing I, the, I, I didn't... I enjoyed it so much. I loved being in chapel. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the stories. I loved the people. Had no faith whatsoever, not for a second. I thought it was clearly a fairy tale, a load of nonsense. But I liked the atmosphere, if you, know, if you see what I mean. Mm. And I also I was very competitive. And the tre- boy trebles in my school choir were very, very competitive. And they used to reward us with um, coloured ribbons with our medals depending on where we you know Royal School of Church Music and uh, I coveted the fat red ribbon around which hung the medal of the head chorister which eventually I attained but I think there was my, my sort of ambition and competitive fires were stoked by singing it's an interesting one isn't it about singing with other people with other people in a way in which you have to subsume to the the corporate project mm. while at the same time being mindful of such opportunities and advantages that may come your way i was lucky also Evelyn. i had a good treble voice when i was a boy so i didn't have to i just didn't really have to work very hard for that to sort of advance my cause mm. do you still sing yeah, I love singing. Yeah. I sing church music now, and uh, I, I've all, I, I've sung every. It's when the Messiah comes round every year. I realise I have sung every part at various stages of my physical development, but I I, I settled on bass. But then I had music lessons a few years ago, singing lessons a few years ago, and um, I'm discovered as a tenor. So I sing tenor now, and I love to sing in an ensemble miss it so much and mm. on all souls day we sang one hymn be still my soul tune finlandia and uh, it was the first time we were socially distanced the first time i had sung um with other people in eight months and i was moved to the point of tears and couldn't sing actually that's amazing amazing and that was you know together in 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 a space or virtually done we were socially distanced in church so yeah. on all souls 
evening, on the evening, we uh, have a service. We invite everyone who, for whom we've conducted a funeral in the previous year. So lots of bereaved people in church. So it's very moving anyway. And also this year, I lost my partner. My brother lost his wife. So it was particularly uh, keen. But we were together in church and we were in darkness. There was just candles lit on the altar, one for every person who died. And then there were just eight singers, I think, and we sang Be Still My Soul. Really simple. Actually, it's Sibelius. It's, you think it's simple. It's actually not that simple. But, but you know, things like sound simple without being simple. Absolutely. Um, and it was lovely. Yeah, I can absolutely imagine. And it just seems such a powerful existence in a way that we are living because it's opening up our senses to be so magnified and and a kind of presence that we have with each other that, you know, isn't in a way uh, perhaps confined to a particular religion or or uh, belief. It's just simply that human yeah. need for connection. I love that idea that human, that, that, that song preceded speech, that we sang to each other before we spoke to each other, because there seems to be something so primordial almost about just that reaction of someone singing at you and you singing back and then singing together. Mm. It's mm. just so stirring. And I realise I've done it all my life from when I was a tiny little boy. And then for the, for the first time in all my life, I've, I've, I've did, I went for eight months without singing. I, went to, I used to sing on my bicycle, so I'd go out on my bike and I would sing <laughs> loudly on my bike, but it's not the same. Oh my gosh and it's it's interesting because um if i can just go but when we think about it the you know the idea of you know singing a lullaby or a um you know a, a, a little um children's song i mean when when we're infants this is just so natural isn't it to to happen and and i wonder how and why and and what happens to us that we we lose that progression of just the natural extension of if the voice being used yeah when, when david when David was dying, the last i mean he was he was sort of in and out of consciousness, and i couldn't if I spoke to him sorry, um so uh, so I would so i would i would lie with him on his bed in intensive care singing. Ridiculous tune, but I, I, I think that that would have, I think that would have connected in a way that perhaps speech wouldn't. Absolutely, and I wonder whether you know, with that intimacy and closeness that you clearly had with David, and certainly in in his final uh, journey, uh, whether it was something that perhaps he he physically felt. You know, if it was such a, a, yeah, a, a yeah. you know, a, a strong, jolly uh, song, as it were, rhythmic song, whether in fact it was also perhaps a, a, a vibration that he, he could feel direct from you. I don't think so. It did feel, I felt that we were vibrating together. Mm. Yeah, I did. He loved music when he worked as well. He was a very keen gardener, but he used to put on... Uh, all sorts of music. So Fortis dance music was a big thing with him. So he would garden in time to the music. And then there were um, kind of great songs of the 60s, Motown. He used to like gardening to that too. And I've got sort of <laughs> filmed him without him realising of him <laughs> doing sort of line dancing while he was um, <laughs> clipping a hedge, things like that. <laughs> Do you feel that, 
you know, since the passing of David, has have you been aware of perhaps your sound environment, whether it's in the home, whether it's your private listening, your social listening, do you think that has changed um, since being with David? Yeah. Well, I mean, the vicarage is quieter because he's not in it. So I have the company of two dogs, which is lovely, but it's not great conversation. (laughs) So... um, so there's, and of course, lockdown happened too, which meant that exactly. sort of isolation was reinforced by that. But music's been really important. I mean, music has always been really important to me. But yeah. um, I find I find that my uh, grief, which of necessity needs to be contained, equally of necessity needs to be expressed too. And I find mm. if I need to do that, the best way in is through music. So there are certain pieces of music which, if I hear they allow me to feel the grief that needs to be felt. Mm. Um, Spiegel und Spiegel is one of the other, there's another one, uh, Rossi Medra, the, the Vaughan Williams organ prelude. Oh, it's a hymn tune, a Welsh hymn tune, known as Lovely in England. And I, I, know, I always thought of it in association with David because he was, to me, so lovely. So if I hear that, I can't listen to that with anybody else at the moment. We had it at his funeral, actually. Mm. Um, and there are other things that Harper Valley PTA, that was such a favourite song of his. <laughs> so, and Joni Mitchell, but I could listen to Joni Mitchell all day and every day. So, but we were great admirers of hers. Yeah, it's incredible how, you know, you can bring the power of music to the power of a person, you know, and, and yeah. still feel that presence and closeness and, and uh, and and just have that person really close at all times, and and when when music is so much part of your life. And I think also for me, it's an interesting one. I noticed at the All Souls services that you know I'm a vicar, and so the job of the vicar is to uh, look like he or she knows what they're doing and to get you through. Mm. So I've been around other people's bereavement a lot, and I know that what they want is for me to be professional. And uh, the All Souls service, where the names of everyone who's died is read out, it's my job to read out the names, so I, I, I cannot grieve because I have to work. Um, and, and I think if you are, because well, there's something about the way in which your private life becomes public that um, you're expected to exercise a degree of control even when it's about something that's controlling you, not something you're in control of. So that mm-hmm. needed a bit of of working out. I've mm-hmm. been talking to someone about that who's been extremely helpful. I think it's often it's a tricky one with clergy is that because we are often master of ceremonies of other people's best days and worst days is that we are not always good on our own. That's really interesting, actually. And I mean, after, let's say you uh, have conducted a marriage um, or a christening or, you know, something that's joyous and, and happy and, and full of celebration. I mean, after you have conducted that ceremony, do you, do you go back home and, and, and just spend a moment reflecting on that or do you analyse it from... Uh, uh, a vicar's point of view, oh, I could have done that better, like a, a piece of music as, as a performer, yeah. um, or do you give yourself time to reflect just the whole, how everybody, you know, might have uh, felt that particular time? Keep it professional on the whole, but there are moments when I had the most wonderful wedding. It was the day before lockdown, second lockdown. It's only a couple of weeks ago. And... Um, one of my parishioners is called Eric, and he's a wonderful cricketer. Uh, and um, 
and uh, he's a builder as well, but a cricketer is what he's sort of known for in the parish. And he had a very complicated on-off relationship with a lovely woman called Lizzie. And anyway, it was always never a dull moment in their, in their life. <laughs> and he came to see me once in church. He was at a, he was a godfather at a baptism and I was conducting of another cricketer. And he stayed behind afterwards. And I said, are you okay? And he said, no, no, so what's the matter? He said, I think I love Lizzie. And I went, oh, great. <laughs> and I said, what, what's the problem? And she said, well, she's just emigrated to Australia. <laughs> and I said, oh, Eric. And he said, what should I do? And I said, well, you know what you should do. And he got on a plane and he flew to Australia. And he oh. went down on one knee. And she said, yes. <laughs> and so they came back. And we were due to marry them. Uh, and then the lock, second lockdown happened. So we, in the end, we brought it forward by three days and fortunately just all fell into place so the day before we had to lock up the church the last thing I did was marry Eric and Lizzie <laughs> and it was just beautiful <laughs> what a great story and I mean in a way you know for a member of the public to feel as though they can approach their their vicar to actually you know express their emotions that doesn't always happen because there can be a slight aloofness sometimes yeah, although if I ever try, Findon is not a community where airs and graces would be generously tolerated. <laughs> and the other thing is, actually, Eric and I, Eric plays in our local band, the Cupping Melons. Please don't ask me about how it got its name. But, um, but so, but, and I've guested with them a couple of times. So we knew each other through, through playing together in a band as well as, you know, Vicar Parishioner. But I've been here for ten years now, Evelyn, and it's the most wonderful thing. I'm, you know, I'm really part of the life of this place now, and I've baptised the kids, and I've married the parents, usually in that order, and uh, <laughs> and I've buried the grandparents, and and we've and we've walked alongside each other in these wonderful and terrible things for ten years now, and it, I, I love that. And I suppose that for them to also understand your journey um, and and almost feel as though they're, they're, they want to support that and they, you know, they equally want to reach out to, to you when you're yeah. in need or when if someone asks you, well, how are you, you know, that you're able well, so to express. It would be a very good lesson for the, for the vicar was, uh, was when David died. Um, it was just before Christmas, yeah. our busiest time of the year. My new curate, she'd just been ordained priest. And then all of a sudden, a week before Christmas, this happened. And then everyone was just fantastic. They, and I could realise that I was sort of worrying about, oh, God, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? Because I knew I couldn't be in church over Christmas. I, at least I knew that. Um, but they just took that burden away from me completely. And they said, just sort yourself out. And I really didn't know what to do. And some friends took me in for Christmas and protected me and, uh, and looked after me. Mm. And uh, if you're used to being the, the sort of technically the caregiver, to be the receiver of care, yeah. w was quite counterintuitive in a way. But but it was wonderful. Of course it was. And, uh, and I needed to mm. do it. And I think what this whole uh, period of lockdown and, and since March, it's allowed us, I think, to tap into everybody's stories you know, that yeah. we may not have taken so much notice of before. And I, I think that's what's been very, very powerful because we actually do all have a story to tell. And, oh, yeah. you know, we're all impacted in some way or another. And but I think we're actually paying attention at this moment with, with more... Yeah. That's absurd that you say that because I think for me, what what I've discovered in a lifetime so far of 
of listening to music is very related to that and it, it's that it pays to pay attention i've learned with music to just give the best attention i possibly can to a piece of music because the fruits of doing that are so wonderful and i and i think that's very close to what you learn as a parish priest is you have to listen to people really 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 listen to people and pay attention mm. uh, i used to think it was about me talking and them listening but it's mm. the opposite and uh, and, I, and, I, and I sometimes feel the same if I'm listening to someone, really listening to someone, it, it feels very like listening to a really profoundly rich piece of music and mm. you've just got to concentrate. Mm. So it's, it's, I guess it's, it's that sort of focus and, and I, I suppose it's presence, you know, we, we all have that opportunity to be present and whatever it is that we're engaging yeah, in, that's yeah. the most important thing at that point in time. And, and, and you owe it everything you've got. It's funny, it's also, this is, I learned this also through, uh, my a- academic field is, is um, textual criticism, New Testament textual criticism, uh, where you look minutely at a portion of text that has been around and in circulation for 2,000 years and poured over by countless innumerable people in all sorts of places but you realize that it is inexhaustible and that you owe it if you're going to take it seriously your best reading and i think it's the same with with music and also with uh, with listening to people you just owe it your best Mm. and what you give it is returned to you yeah and i could possibly relate that also to improvisation because, of course, you have no script, there is no story, and, and you're asking the audience also to listen in a very different way because there are no programme notes. And and so together we're building this piece of music. So yeah. something might be picked up from the audience. You know, yeah. it, 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 your senses are just so razor sharp, really, but it can be the simplest thing that is just... Yeah taken and then and then it off you go and you build the story with it the thing i've learned to love more and more is i love being in the audience for ah. music i really love listen we had an argument about this that we would we do choral even song here uh, in church where we do normally and sometimes members of the congregation feel excluded in that it's sung by a choir so the psalm is sung by a choir and we had a discussion around this and i wanted to suggest that being in an audience or being in a congregation is not passive reception it's active engagement and that was very interesting and that was a a fruitful conversation and I feel that more and more now as audience if I'm listening to music it's so wonderful isn't it when you go it sounds terribly elitist but when you go somewhere where you're confident that everyone in the audience is as committed as you and the performers are Mm. to this being the best it can be. I mean, you get it at the Wigmore Hall sometimes, or I went to Bayreuth for a ring cycle a couple of years ago for the first time, and it was it was really great just being with an audience that was really working hard at being an audience. Mm, interesting. And I mean, you're. I mean, the, I've got actually so many questions, and I'm realising that our our time oh, is sorry. marching on. No, <laughs> no, it's absolutely fascinating, and this is exactly you know what, what I'm finding just so interesting um, because I'm just going to look at some of my questions because um, you know you've just got such an eclectic uh, 
view on music, such an eclectic uh, uh, listening repertoire, and the fact that, you know, as a young person, you formed with Jimmy Somerville the communards. And, of course, this was such a, a, a distinct type of music. But what led, do you think, from being the choir boy to what you were experiencing with the really fairly hardcore contemporary music, you know, with Benjamin Britten or or Tippett or whoever, to then form this duo with Jimmy? Well, it was... I mean, the short answer is homosexuality. Um, In that I kind of realised when I was a teenager, as soon as I realised that I had any kind of sexual desires at all, um, that I was gay. And... In those days, middle 70s, in middle England, that meant if you wanted to live a life that was livable, you'd have to go away to find it. So I, as soon as I could, I was 18, I sort of ran away to London. And so did Jimmy Somerville. He ran away to London too from another unlivable life, but he grew up in sectarian working-class Glasgow yeah. in a community where his family were all involved in the Orange Order and um, they were very poor. And life was extremely tough. Mm. Uh, And his life was very tough. And he ran away to London, I ran away to London. We just happened to run away to the same place at the same time. So we met and became friends. And the fascinating thing about that was, if you were a sort of young gay runaway in London, then it was a commonwealth. So I came from, I couldn't have come from a more different background than Jimmy Somerville. Middle class, relatively privileged, English public school, classically trained, chorister. And Jimmy came from the nothing like that. Mm. But we had this common purpose and this common identity. And we forged a very deep, profound friendship. Um, And then we started working together. And it was just that thing about people who were... It was our strength and our weakness was that because we were so different, we kept sort of finding new echoes in each other that we hadn't experienced before but it also meant when things were tough between us we didn't have a common language to resolve dispute so there was never a dull moment and um, Jimmy came from a a world and a background where he he sort of just went to nuclear war there was nothing no intervening kind of conventional conflict whereas I come from a world where no one ever said anything (laughs) sharp ever at all or raised a voice so it was that was kind of complicated but it's no coincidence that when I listen to Jimmy's voice now, he did have this extraordinarily beautiful and powerful falsetto, which could sometimes sound very like a boy treble. So I think something in that I must have must have triggered something deep in me. And also, one of the most powerful experiences of my growing up was my voice breaking, because I was head chorister, I got all the great repertoire, I was centre stage in the spotlight. I was 12, and then all of a sudden I couldn't do it anymore. I remember singing, there was a solo in that, of anthem on Thou Visitest the Earth, and it was some big service, I can't remember what it was, but sort of mayor and dignitaries were there. And I, my voice cracked in the middle of this solo, and I loved it because it had a nice soaring E in it, I think it was. And it just went, and I realised that my moment was done, and it was devastating, actually. Um, common experience, I think, for, for choristers, boy choristers. Absolutely. And, and in a way, I think that's always in the back of musicians' minds because um, you never know whether you're 
playing career, your instrumental career, is going to be suddenly cut short, whether it's through an accident or yeah. or whether just something is never now working properly um, yeah. and you can't quite define it, or, or whether it's just going to be a gradual thing, but it, it is in the back of your mind. So it, it, yeah. I can understand it must have been absolutely devastating. It, it was. I mean, a, a good lesson, I think. But But I think it meant that for me to hear the, the the sound of boy trebles is incredibly powerful not just for nostalgic reasons but also because it i don't know it's music from a a, a land i'm in exile from and that's quite complicated and i think with jimmy sometimes there was an element of jealousy sometimes in he also had the most extraordinarily naturally gifted musician never had a lesson ever had perfect pitch could do anything didn't know how good he was you could just say well can you do that and he'd go yeah and he would do it and you'd think you can't do that but he would do it and would never without so much as a sort of breaking a sweat he was extraordinarily gifted um whereas i had to labor very hard for my um really better than mediocre um output so that was quite it felt quite tricky was working with someone who was exceptionally and it, with with jimmy also it, it, it's such a. Th- I don't know if it's quite the same uh, in the classical world, but certainly in pop music, it's about stars. And Jimmy really was a star, is a star. And uh, I remember talking to Simon Napier Bell about this. He's a great manager, managed Mark Bolan and George Michael, lots of people. And he said that the star is the person who can take the raw material of their life and turn it into their art. And that's what Jimmy did. And he's, his life was extremely tough. His childhood was unimaginably hard. And he'd survived. And he managed to kind of... He managed to put that into his performance, into his voice. Not just for him, but for generations of people. He had mm. that power to do it. There's something quite magical about it. Mm. But also quite um, enviable. Absolutely. And in the whole creative process together, was this a, a real shared experience? I mean, how did the actual creativity towards the, the material happen? Well, not like that. I mean, what, what would happen was that I would diligently go away and sort of write a track and then I would give it to him and then he would sing something, come up with some words. Um, but it was very compartmentalised, actually, partly because we worked in very different ways. I was more kind of conscious of what I was doing. And, you know, again, if you're a chorister, you're trained to, to a professional standard before you're out of short trousers, really. Yeah. So four-part harmony and arrangements. I used to do all that kind of MD. I used to do all that, and I loved doing that. Yeah. Um, and so I would do my bit, then hand over to him, and then he would do his magical thing. And... Uh, and when it worked, it actually worked rather well, but it wasn't really collaborative. Okay. And as our success increased and the pressures on our relationship grew, our lack of collaboration became critical, really. And we sort of became strangers to each other. And then uh, it was it was very difficult, actually. And then you realise you've got to stop doing it and um, and start doing something else. That, that's really interesting because, in a way, I was going to ask, you know, whether the success... I mean, you had a number one hit for four weeks, I i believe. And, and uh, you know, did that... I mean, what I'm trying to say is, were you after fame? Did you enjoy fame? Clearly, it had an impact on the creative aspect. But 
it's interesting how the listening changes because you you find well what are you listening to you know oh I absolutely craved it Um, I wanted I wanted that well I wanted glory I always have done interesting Uh, And also the rewards were so extraordinary. And I'd lived for a couple of years in London, absolutely skint on the dole. And I was just beginning to learn the lessons that that teaches you, which are quite tough lessons, really. And I thought, well, if I don't sort myself out, um, there is no reason why um, I should ever do anything than live hand to mouth. And I didn't want to do that. So pop music, when it came along, the opportunity of Jimmy Somerville came along, um, well, magnificently answered that. Mm. But it was quite tricky also because I had to pretend I didn't care, but I did care, but I had to pretend I didn't because we were a good left-wing socialist band mm. and we were not motivated by uh, material desires, but by... Um, well, it's always complicated, isn't it? One's motives are never entirely pure or impure. But So there was an interesting way. We, we, on the one hand, what we wanted to do was to sort of transform people's lives and use music as a way of energising young people to engage with the world, to become politically active and all that. So it was a kind of... Uh, we were rabble-rousers. Uh, but at the same time, I did enjoy the rewards and the esteem of the world. And if you are in a successful pop band, um, in those days, financially, it was extremely well rewarded mm-hmm. not so much now but also people were always pleased to see you and always happy to acquiesce to whatever your will wish or whim might mm. be and you get used to that very quickly and mm. you begin to think it's a state of nature rather than simply um, what's happening because you're occupying that space at that moment learning to live without it is much harder than learning to live with it I can imagine. And so now, do you, are you in touch with Jimmy? Would you imagine a reunion at all? Or <laughs> oh, it's, it's sort of proposed every every year, one form or another, but we've managed to resist it so far. We're not really in touch. I mean, we see, I bumped into him in the BBC a couple of years ago. We had a very cordial hour together. Um, and we've been in touch where we've needed to be. And mm. do you know it's a bit like your ex... Um, I mean, I love Jimmy and I owe him an enormous amount and I will fiercely, fiercely stand up for him and defend him if required. Um, but there's a lot of water under the bridge. Yeah. And I think our relationship had a sort of beginning, a middle and an end. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, isn't it? And that in itself is is a form of listening, you know, just knowing when there's this natural, the natural freeze has just come to that end really it's a tricky one it's especially for me because i always want the the show to go on actually but i think one of the things i learned with jimmy is 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 that it's so interesting one of the songs i heard it the other day it was a song that we wrote and uh performed. i don't think it was ever released actually but it was a song in which his i wrote the music it's like a jolly little tune and then he wrote the words and it's <laughs> the chorus was won't you try to understand my point of view and i realize now that he was singing to me that we were at loggerheads at the time. And I thought it was all about him being a diva, you know, and unable to hear reason from me in the boiler house. (laughs) And I realised actually I was failing to hear him just as much as he was failing to hear me. And he was only singing it to me in my face and I hadn't even noticed at the time.
Yes. Well, I was pop music. I could, I could see that that, that, that was I, was was over, and uh, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did what lots of people do. I took a year out, really, and then I took drugs mostly, <laughs> and like lots of it seemed like a brilliant idea at the time, and I did have lots of fun, but it was a car crash actually, and eventually the inevitable happened, and there was a crash, and I had to sort of pick myself up and dust myself off, and and um, and that was very difficult. And it coincided with the arrival of HIV, which, of course, for yeah. my generation, if you're a gay man yeah. of my age and background living in somewhere like London, that was just devastating. So there was a very dark period when I should think half the people we knew, you know, got a cough on Tuesday and died on Friday. Yeah. It was really, really terrible. And and I think that one of I think one of the things that did to me was provoke questions that I needed to take somewhere. And all the places I'd previously taken questions and found answers, I wasn't finding answers for this. And I just, after a while, remembered being in chapel and in churches and in cathedrals and remembering what I sensed then without really understanding, which was that they are those, there are places where you take that stuff. And so I went into one taking that stuff. And the minute I did, it was... Uh, a moment of it was a conversion moment actually we've been coming on for a long time but the it was in Scotland funnily enough it was in St Mary's Cathedral in Palmerston Place in Edinburgh wow beautiful and well yeah I was passing I was in Edinburgh doing something else mm. uh, for the festival and it was the even song and they sang Stanford in B flat which I'd sung a million times when I was a boy chorister um, it's not a piece of music that I think would be preserved for civilization were it not part of the kind of war horse yeah. choral repertoire. But I heard it and it just spoke to me across the decades and across what seemed to me uh, an unbridgeable chasm in my life between where I'd started and where I'd got to. Mm. But of course, that wasn't the case. But that's what drew me back in. And then I started going to church and the minute I did, I listened to church music. Um, it it was it, it changed the direction of my life. And it's interesting that again music seemed oh, yeah. to be that that you know all important bridge again, you know. Yeah. And and I'm curious. Can... Well, sorry, uh, Richard, I'm just stepping in there. I'm I'm uh, curious as to you know during the time of you know experimenting with drugs and just finding your way, did you block music out completely during that time or or? No, I did something weirder. I deafened myself with music, which perhaps ah. is a way of doing it. So uh, nightclubs, I mean, you know, I've been playing in pop bands for a few years, so I was pretty much deafened by that because on stage sound levels were ridiculous. Um, and then in my year of abandonment, chunk of that I spent in Ibiza with some friends and we were in Amnesia and Coup and all the great sort of nightclubs of that house music scene and one of the features of that was excessive volume mm. so every night I would be standing on a dance floor with practically my head in an enormous speaker so the music was circular that the uh, you felt the music absolutely in your body as well as uh, hearing it in your mind but the cost of that was tinnitus which has been my 
burden to carry now. Um, again, it's a very common complaint with people who were in pop bands is that because we didn't know enough about defending our ears, uh, we pay a price for it later on. So I think I deafened myself with music, funnily enough. And I'm not sure, mm. that was a very peculiar thing to do because I loved it, but it was also, I think I wanted it to be, it was kind of almost like suicide listening in a way. That's a very extreme way of putting it. But I, I thought I wanted to hear to the point I couldn't hear anymore, not understanding, as I do now, that that actually is a workable scenario. You can, you can damage your hearing. That's indeed. Do you know? I remember Evelyn going to uh, this is a terrible name drop, really, but I remember going to the opera with Sir George Martin, um, who was a friend of a friend, and um, he was a great hero of mine. You know, for so many people, and I remember we were talking. We were talking about pop music and um and i remember he had two hearing aids and uh, he said that he wasn't one to give advice particularly but he did say take care of your hearing if you're in a pop band because um you will pay for it later which is indeed i'm doing now and the the big change in the way i, I listen to music and hear now is i'm having to do so with a disability which i haven't had before so that's where i am now mm, and it's it, it is interesting i i do remember uh, meeting him also, and and uh, it, it was extraordinary being in his presence, where he was exactly talking about his own situation with a hearing loss, and and it's now something that the music world can talk about, and I think yeah. that's that's so so important, and there are wonderful devices there to help uh, people who who you know, need it or want it, want to try it and so on. I mean, I, I actually remember about two or three years ago playing in Antwerp in Belgium and uh, ready to go into my dressing room and they said, oh, you'll be able to get into it in the afternoon uh, simply because it had been, uh, it turned into an audiology room um, for the orchestral musicians to have their hearing tested. So it's, I think that's all good news, and it's great that our music institutions and establishments are also allowing uh, students to have their hearing tested and, and really keep on top of that. Um, so it is interesting, and, and so I think we've learned very much from uh, you know, 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, where it's maybe not such a good idea to bury our heads in big speakers. Yeah, and the idiotic... Um you know, the things you do when you're... I, you know, it's like no one ever dreamed of putting on a crash helmet, did they? Because you you just want the wind in your hair and the roar of the engine. And it was the same when I was in my 20s of music. I never dreamed of putting in ear defenders, whereas uh, I... I Funny, I saw my nephew yesterday, Oliver, who's a rugby player, and uh, cheerfully picks up the sort of injuries that rugby players do when they're 17. And I started slightly giving him the lecture about looking after yourself. And I thought, that's a complete, that is, well, <laughs> that's something he cannot hear right now no. because he's 17. And uh, that doesn't really compute. No, absolutely. And just a few final questions, Richard, because I, I realise that uh, we're taking up um, a good portion of your time. But you know, you've done an awful lot of incredibly diverse things and so many of them we just haven't touched today, you know, but um, all of your wonderful writings, your presentation, um, your just, just, we seem to listen to what you say, you know. It, it, there are people in this world whereby whenever they speak, 
we listen. There's always something interesting that's going to be said, an interesting take and so on. And I wonder whether this, you know, need to be completely open, free, true, honest with who you are is so important. It seems to have been absolutely crucial in your life and you haven't been too worried from what I can gather as to what people think, you know, it, it, even although you've come from a respectful background and there might have been expectations and so on and so forth. But today with social media where we're comparing this and that and, and it seems to be thwarting on the one hand our freedom but yet giving us the opportunity to be free. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, basically listening to ourselves? It's a really tough question. I mean, I think it's such a crowded spectrum, isn't it? I remember this when I was trying to, when I was learning to pray, what I learned to do was to try, this was that the world was full of hiss and static and somewhere in there, there was the frequency, the God frequency. And what I needed to do was just to find a way of tuning in through the hiss and static to lock onto the signal and on a good day something like that would happen i spent two years in a monastery trying very hard to do that and learned an awful lot and again uh, perhaps too easy a metaphor in a way but i, I think trying to lock onto the signal yeah. is what you need to do i think i mean i suppose i'm like everybody else i tend to shy away from difficult truths i don't particularly want light to shine on the darker parts of my life but I've also learnt that sometimes you just have to let the truth, you know, Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I think there is something about that. There are certain just essential realities about people and about situations and about living and circumstances and that, and that sooner or later you simply have to do the best you can to face them. And that comes at a cost sometimes and you might be wrong very often. And other people can get bruised and battered and wounded and hurt as that happens, and that needs fixing too. But it has to be done. The, the most hard. I remember once. I remember once going to. I was taking. Uh, I was anointing somebody who was dying in a hospital, and as I was leaving, the nurse said, "Would you see somebody else?" And there was a lady who was at the end of her life in a side room, and she was very, very sorrowful. And uh, I said, are you OK? And she was able to speak. And and what's the matter? Thinking that there was something on her conscience. And she said, I've done nothing with my life. I'm at the end of my life. I've never done anything. I was too scared. And it's over. Mm. And I've done nothing with my life. And it was just the most heartbreaking thing. And I think I've perhaps always sensed or known that sometimes you simply have to do something or face something or say something or risk something because if you don't the cost of not doing it will be greater than the cost of doing it. Richard thank you so so much for your time it, it's it's just been such a, a pleasure and honour for me to oh, share this, mine. this conversation it, it really is it's just opened up so many um, thoughts in my mind and I'm sure for all our listeners as well and we just really appreciate it thank you can I just ask you one very quick question of yes is that a gamelan behind you <laughs> 
Yes, it is. So uh, if, if ever you find yourself, you know, at a loose end or you're in this particular vicinity, feel free to, to, <laughs> to call in and we can have an explore of some of the instruments and you can bring That's your exactly. accordion. <laughs> <laughs> Whereabouts are you in Cambridgeshire? Uh, the office here is in Huntingdon. Oh, gosh, you've touched down the road. That's it where just... I do my speed awareness courses. <laughs> How many have you done? Three. <laughs> Terrible. It is appalling. <laughs> really bad. I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.